Now, maybe this happened to you this morning. Maybe you looked at the title of the message on the bulletin and you wondered to yourself, was it a misprint in the bulletin? Is that what you were reading? Shouldn't it read the problems that growth brings as opposed to what it does read? And it could very well read that. Growth does bring with it problems. In our passage, for instance, we're going to see that as a result of the church growing, there was a period of ministerial insufficiency and inefficiency. And as a result of that problem, many other problems could have happened. Slander could have happened. Division could have happened. A church split could have resulted. So there are indeed problems that result from growth. But when we go through the entirety of the passage... I think you will come to find that in the life of the church, much spiritual growth and even numeric growth, people coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can result from problems being rightly addressed. And so you might say, we will see in our text, by the time we get to the end of it, we will see the growth that problems bring. But with that being said, we'll get right into the text and we will create some context. We begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, where we read, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the beginning of verse 1 says, The number of the disciples was multiplying. The church was growing. We've seen this in our study of Acts. Remember, Luke told us that on the day of Pentecost... 3,000 people got saved and were added to the 120. We were told in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord was adding daily to the church those who were being saved. And then in Acts chapter 3, we saw a lame man was made whole. We saw Peter preach what is often referred to as his second sermon. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we find that the number of men, not even counting women or believing children, the number of believing men came to be about 5,000. Then we go to Acts chapter 5, after the whole Ananias and Sapphira incident, and we're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. And now, after we have seen the apostles be beaten for their profession of faith in Christ, here we are in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and again we're told the number of the disciples was multiplying. There may have been, there are estimates that range in different places, there may have been somewhere between 20,000 or 25,000 believing Christians in Jerusalem and Judea at this time. The church was indeed growing. First thing I want you to note about that, Jesus, true to his word, he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The Ananias and Sapphira incident couldn't stop it. The persecution that came from without couldn't stop it. Jesus is building his church. The church is growing. That's one of the things I want you to see. And it's still happening today. You don't have to always see it with your eyes to know building is always happening. Jesus is adding to the church those who are being saved. All around the world, Jesus is doing what he said he would do. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he is building his church. And the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. He is unstoppable. And as great as that is, one could easily imagine the issues that come with growth, especially that kind of growth. Like imagine if we went from like, you know, the number we are now to like 500 or 1,000 or 10,000. <laughs> There'd be a lot of 
uh, efficiency issues that we would have. And when you have a church growing like this, like it was in the first century, some people can feel left out. Other people can feel overlooked. Some areas of ministry can become, at least for a time, less efficient and so on. And as a result, problems can ensue. So before we go on and see what the problem was specifically in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, let me provide you with some quick pastoral counsel. If you have a servant's mindset, and if you are someone who spends time around the church for your own growth and for the good of others, you will be less likely to believe that old Irish folk song that my grandmother had told me about. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go and eat worms. If you're around the church, if you're a servant, you're around the people of God, you're not going to end up thinking, nobody likes me. You're not going to end up thinking, everybody hates me. And you certainly aren't going to say, I'm going to go and eat worms. Regardless of what the World Economic Forum thinks you and I might enjoy. <laughs> if a church is growing and you are around you're talking to people, if you're praying with people, if you're serving alongside of people, if you're serving with people, if you're learning, if you're asking questions and so on, you're not worried about being overlooked because you're someone who is looking for other people to serve. See, the people who are worried about being overlooked oftentimes, maybe not all the time, but oftentimes aren't the ones who are looking for other people to serve. You get involved in people's lives, you pray for people, you love on people, you talk to people. More often than not, though, though not always, it's not always the case, but more often than not, you won't feel overlooked because you're one who is looking to serve and to be a blessing to others. And in that, you end up building these great, amazing relationships so I think looking to love, to help, and to serve, and being around long enough to do those things is a great way to avoid feeling overlooked. Second bit of pastoral counsel would be this. Although we are not told of Satan's involvement in this passage, we're not told that this was a strategy of the devil, it's not difficult to imagine his involvement at some level. It's my opinion that one of the best tools to destroy a local church is division. And division can happen over the silliest things. In my preparation for this message, I've seen multiple ministers reference a story that um, Dwight Pentecost had told in, um, in his work on Philippians. He told a story of a church in Dallas that had decided to split. And uh, in this split, each faction entered into a lawsuit against the other, even though the scripture forbids that kind of thing. They nonetheless entered into a lawsuit to see who would have the proper claim over the church property. And a judge had ruled that it was not in the province of the civil court to settle the matter before it had been delivered uh, or deliberated by the church courts. So, eventually, the decision was made to award the property to one group and not the other. The other ends up starting their own church, and you have this split that happened. But to add to the infamy of the situation, it was reported to Dallas newspapers that the conflict actually traced back to an interesting source, particularly when one elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child that was seated next to him. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, I know, I've been there. <laughs> it's not easy. I've been there when that kid has gotten the ham that I wanted. You're probably thinking, like, really? Is that a true story? Did that actually happen? Well, I haven't vetted Dwight Pentecost. I don't have eyewitnesses to that actual account. I don't have the newspaper source and so on. But nonetheless, 
Things can happen. Division can come for very silly reasons. And we have to be on guard against it. Because what might seem like a little thing turns into a big thing when dissension and division and even church splits happen over the silliest of things. We have to be on guard against that kind of thing. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 17, He said, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. And I think it's good for us as a church to always be reminded, or often be reminded, that one of the things that God hates, you look in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, you'll see six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. One of those is the one who sows discord among brethren. He hates that. But what does he love? Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. Is that always going to be easy? No, it's not always going to be easy. That's why we have to do what Ephesians 4.3 says. We have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3. Well, now to the situation in Acts. Still in verse 1, we're told that there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. You're like, okay, who are the Hebrews and who are the Hellenists? Both groups were Jewish Christians. The Hebrews were Jewish Christians who were likely from Jerusalem and Judea. They likely spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, and they embraced their Jewish culture. That's who the Hebrews are. Hebrew, Jewish, believing Christians. Well, who are the Hellenists? Hellenists, in this context, they were those Jewish believers who were part of the diaspora. They were part of those Christians who had been Hellenized. They were in different parts of the known world. We see that in Acts chapter 2, for instance, those who came to Pentecost from all different places but were Jews, likely spoke Greek as their primary language, likely attended a synagogue where they heard the scriptures not taught in Hebrew but taught from the Septuagint in Greek and had embraced the Greek culture. So that's who the... Hebrews were and who the Hellenists were. Um, some commentators note that there was some measure of hostility and prejudice between these two groups, at least prior to coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrews would look down at the Hellenists and say, they're not truly real Jews and so on. But one of the things I want us to know is that whatever prejudice might have existed between these two groups prior to coming to Christ, the two groups were now under the umbrella of the one church. They shared the same gospel. They shared the same Heavenly Father. They shared the same Lord. They were indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. They had all embraced believers' baptism and were baptized as believers and so on. Regardless of whatever preconceived notions they had against each other, they were united in Christ. But there was nonetheless a problem. What was the problem? The Hellenists, those Hellenized Jews, were saying that their widows, so other Hellenized Jews, were neglected in the daily distribution. You might say the daily distribution of what? Well, most likely the daily distribution involved the distribution of food to those widows. It may have also involved the distribution of clothing and alms. Well, you're going to see when the apostles reference tables in the next verse that it wasn't appropriate or right or pleasing for them to serve tables. The word table, when you go through the Gospels, could actually refer to a table on which food was eaten or a table where money was exchanged. So the idea was that the widows were neglected in the distribution of food and or alms, financial help and resources, maybe even things like clothing. In Israel, it was well established in the Old Testament that God declared himself to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Psalm 68, verse 5. 
And the people of God were to image God's compassion and concern for the most vulnerable in society. The church still has that responsibility. You can look at James chapter 1, verse 27. Galatians 2. Um, as an aside, let me just give you two brief observations of this. First, I want you to think how amazing it was. Early church, fledgling church, and they have the resources to support these Hebrew widows and these Jewish Hellenized widows. What generosity must have flowed through the church? We've seen already some of that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. But think about the generosity so that these widows could be supported. May that just inspire you to be the kind of person that helps other people, specifically those who are in need, to grow in that grace, to grow in that grace. Second, I want you to remember this, quick note, this was not an avenue for abuse and indolence. The daily distribution wasn't an avenue for abuse and indolence. It'll become clear as you go through the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul comes on the scene in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, that the widows that were to be supported by the church they were to be those widows who did not have other family support. They were basically on their own. Family had abandoned them, wasn't providing for them, or they had no family to provide for them. But it was also expected that they would meet ethical requirements, and it was expected that they would dutifully serve the church if they were able. Why do I say that? Because you're going to see later on in redemptive history that even as it relates to the help of widows, there was requirements that were associated with that help. May your mind be renewed, because we live in a culture that is so quick oftentimes to render help, which isn't all that helpful, because it neglects requirements that the Bible does not see as unethical, but as right and appropriate. Whether it's labor requirements, work requirements, or ethical requirements, or an actual legitimate need requirement, and so on. And back to the text. Um, the Hellenists' widows were being overlooked. We're not told the motive. Ministerial inefficiency is probably the issue. Language was probably an issue. Was it some form of prejudice from the Hebrews against the Hellenists? Maybe. But the scripture doesn't say that. I think what we know in light of the text is that the church was growing, the ministry had become inefficient, and there was a language barrier, at least in some cases, that probably fueled this. And notice that the text says there arose a complaint, a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. That word that's used there in the text, the New Testament Greek word for complaint, is the word gongusmas. Gongusmas. It's one of those words that likely fits under the banner of onomatopoeia. You're like, what? Onomatopoeia? <laughs> you might remember that word from grammar school, right? That, that was a, a kind of a category of words that sound like what, the, what they're referring to. Buzz, right? Buzz is a word that sounds like what it's referring to. Bang is a word that sounds like what it's referring to. Well, to some degree, you have that here with this New Testament Greek word, gungusmas. It's not, you've got to work really hard to say gungusmas in a positive way. I tried. I was kind of practicing to see how you do that. But typically, it flows off the tongue in that way, gungusmas. <laughs> it connotes complaining, murmuring. It's used four times in the New Testament, never used in a good way. In fact, Paul told the church of Philippi, do all things without gungusmas. Do all things without complaining. And it's used other times as well in the New Testament. It's also used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to what the children of Israel so often did and they shouldn't have done. They complained and they murmured. 
Let me just say here, quick pastoral counsel, if you have that problem, you want to stop it. And I know, I know that's a battle we're all going to face. I think to some degree, we all should recognize that as an issue. And we want to say, okay, you know what? I want to freshly put my hand to the plow of stopping that. I think Spurgeon put it well when he said, 10 minutes of praying is better than a year's murmuring. He also said, as long as a man is alive and out of hell, he cannot have any cause to complain. I think that's helpful. I had also seen, interestingly, that Mark Twain, interestingly enough, had said, uh, don't complain to people because 80% of people won't care and the other 20% of people will think that you deserve it, whatever you're complaining about. I'm not as cynical. I think the scary thing is you can complain to people and they will care. And they will talk to you about it. But what can happen then is that you're feeding a bacteria that you shouldn't be feeding. You don't want to complain. There'll be things to talk about, things to voice, but you want to do it in a way that is led by the Holy Spirit, not under the influence of the flesh. Well, grumbling started in this church. A complaint arose, and that's a dangerous thing, and it needs to be addressed. And doubtless the apostles knew that. What happens next is so instructive. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So much to learn here. Look at the apostles' first step. They didn't let the matter fester. They didn't pretend it wasn't an issue. Just leave it alone. It'll work itself out. They didn't do some lying PR stunt where they tried to like work on it behind the scenes but didn't let the people know what was really going on. They summoned the whole multitude of disciples together. Who knows how many people showed up for this meeting? And I love that. They addressed it. They didn't let it linger. Quick note, for those who have any leadership responsibilities in a church, in their home, in a business, when a problem arises, you don't want to be somebody who says, I'm just going to let that problem run its course. More often than not, you do well to address the problem and try to help fix the problem. That's what the apostles did here. And notice, apparently, they had listened to the complaint. Even if it was coming out in a bad way, Gongusmas, people were complaining, murmuring. The apostles didn't just dismiss it. They're like, okay, what's the issue? Apparently, they had heard the issue. They actually listened to what the complaint was, and they thought about what they could do to address it. And then you see that they did address it with a plan of action. Oh, I think that's so instructive in so many ways. I do also want to say uh, that their counsel begins with a lesson on the importance of priorities. Look at what they said in verse 2. It's not desirable. Um, that word that's used there could refer to that which is pleasing, that which is fit or right. It's not desirable. It's not fit that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now again, we're not told that Satan was directly involved with what was going on. But I can't help but notice another tool that I think is a useful tool in the hands of the enemy, and that is the tool of distraction. 
The apostles here were faced with the temptation to be distracted. To say, okay, we got a problem, we need to fix it. As a matter of fact, maybe some people suggested that they be the ones to fix this in the kind of hands-on way. And that's why the apostles are saying, it's not desirable or pleasing or fit that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Because maybe some people were like, you need to fix this. You need to be here and do this. And it was very important what the apostles do next show us that the serving of tables was a priority of great importance. But it could have pulled them away from what God had called them to do, particularly the ministry of the word. I think that is so instructive. I think just to take a moment, why don't you just ask yourself in this moment, what is distracting me from serving the Lord in the way that I ought to? If you're a Christian, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's gifted you in some way. How are you using that gift to build up Jesus' church? And what are the distractions that are coming into your life or that do sometimes come or often come to pull you away from that? The apostles here provide such instruction for us. They saw the distraction and they resisted the temptation to fall into that trap. I mean, so many distractions coming your way. I can go off on a a wild goose chase of of listing distractions. I think that we have been... Um, in our culture, um, conditioned to be distracted by cell phones. I I think instead of rolling out of bed and onto the knees and beginning to pray, I think more often not people are tempted to lay in bed, grab the phone, and go to a social media page of one kind or another to check some YouTube account, Twitter page, or whatever other social media platform that people use, and so on, Instagram and TikTok. I know there's a whole bunch of ones out there. And I think people have been just conditioned to embrace distraction. And I want to tell you, whatever would keep you from doing what God's called you to do, be aware of it. Don't just go through life just kind of haplessly walking through life, being pulled away by every distraction. What is distracting you? What is distracting you in this moment? People, it's a crazy thing. Even during the message of the Word of God, people can be on their cell phones. People could be looking on their cell phones, sending a message to people, doing all kinds of things during the ministry of the word. Now, if there's an emergency or something like that, I get that. But just know you and I are being pulled in so many directions where distractions are becoming so normal. To keep yourself focused on the giving thing is like abnormal. And people say, I just can't do it. I can't do it for more than three minutes. I can't read something if it's more than four minutes long. I can't sit in front of something if it's this long, unless it's a movie. For some reason, I can sit there more often than not. You want to resist all of those temptations and fight against them. You may lose some battles, but by God's grace, you'll win the war. And the apostles here, I think, modeled that for us. And what do they say? Their plan of action begins with teaching the church about priorities. They were saying that their calling demanded attention. They had to give themselves to the word of God. They should not leave it. More about that in verse 4. But let me say this. If a new pastor was asking me for advice and said, I'm starting at a church. It's a church plant. Or I'm coming in to serve at another church. Um, What advice do you have for me? I would say it's of paramount importance to serve the church in the ministry of the word. I would say teach. I would say teach through a book of of the Bible on Sunday morning. I would say find another venue to teach. Teach during a midweek service. Teach during a small group. Teach during a class. 
Teach during a Friday night service. Teach during Sunday school. Teach during a Sunday night service. Teach via devotionals. Do anything you can to fulfill your calling and minister the word of God to people. You will grow as you do that. Your people will grow as you do that. And together you will grow together in unity because together you are being renewed by the word of God and coming under the word of God. It is of utmost priority that the pastor be somebody and that the pastors, those elders in a local church, be those who are given to the word of God, growing in the word of God, dispersing the word of God. And I think the apostles model that here. Um, for, for the sake of time, I will go through um, verse 3, and then we will close with verse 3, and then we'll pick up Lord willing next week. Look at verse 3. As their counsel continues, they tell the church, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we may appoint over this business. So I want you to see that the congregation was involved in this process. And they gave them the responsibility. Seek out seven men from among yourselves. This was wise. The apostles would have the final decision. They would be ones to lay hands on those people that were brought forth. They would be the ones to appoint them. But they gave the people the charge overseeing who is going to be the people that are presented. I think especially in this context, that makes a lot of sense. The apostles could not be accused of being partial. People couldn't say, well, you chose those people. Why did you choose those people? Apostles could say, you chose those people. Why did you choose those people? So they chose those people. The people did. And the people obviously cared about the matter. Remember, the complaint had arisen among the people. So the apostles said, choose seven. You might say, well, why did they choose seven? We're not told exactly. We know in the scriptures that seven is a number that is often connected with completeness. That's uh, part of its significance, the number seven. Uh, maybe they chose seven because seven days a week, um, each man could oversee this responsibility one day a week. Maybe that was it. Um, it's also possible that according to the Mishnahs, the Cambridge commentary suggests, the number seven was no doubt fixed, fixed on because that was the number of persons chosen to manage public business in Jewish towns. They go on in the commentary to cite specific places from the Mishnah where that's referenced. So we're not told exactly, but they nonetheless chose seven. And then the apostles, we see, they proposed delegation here for the sake of organization. Okay, I want to make a point that I think is so helpful. Of course, you can have organiza organizational structures in a local church that end up facilitating spiritual deadness. Right? You could have certain administrative policies and things in place that only help to facilitate spiritual deadness in a local church. You can have organizational ministerial structures that are devoid of true God-glorifying ministry. You can have a well-organized, wordless, compassionless, flesh-filled ministry. But you can also have Bibleless, compassionless, flesh-filled ministry under the guise of freedom in the Holy Spirit. You can have that too. And I think it's important for us to remember that when we look at who our God is, our God has a way of bringing order out of chaos. That all things are to be done decently and in order. God is not against God-glorifying administration and God-glorifying organization. Some of us grew up in church cultures where you hear that kind of thing and you think it's akin to spiritual deadness. It's not at all. Let me give you a great illustration of this, by the way. If you go into 1 Kings, if you've done like an annual Bible reading or if you just read through 1 Kings, 
you have probably had that moment where you get to 1 Kings 4 and it's kind of hard for you to get from like 1 Kings 4 through the first half of 1 Kings 8. Because there's a lot of details there. It's not genealogy details. It's details that are connected with what I'm about to tell you. In 1 Kings 3, it's that moment where Solomon receives that invitation from the Lord to ask for whatever he wanted. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. And then God gives him even more than wisdom, but God gives him wisdom. And what you see in the chapters that follow, which you may perceive to be boring, is in large measure the outworking of that wisdom. You see in 1 Kings 4, the administration, the governors that Solomon appointed, who was serving in the role of recorder, who was serving in this role, this was the outworking of God's wisdom. You can see how he goes through the king of Tyre to get the resources to furnish the temple. You can see how he puts certain people in charge of certain things. It's all the outworking of wisdom, and for many Christians, it's so boring and hard to read through. And why do I tell you that? Because I know the exercise of the wisdom of God in places like administration and organization may be boring, but that doesn't mean that it's not of God. And that doesn't mean that it's not an outworking of wisdom. And I know that we're, we're kind of removed from 1 Kings 4. We're like, okay, it's hard to imagine all these details of the temple. But I say that as an example so that you'll remember that things being done efficiency, in, in efficiency in an orderly way is, I would argue, an outworking of God's wisdom when done, of course, is led by the Holy Spirit. Look at the requirements for these uh, individuals. This is where we're going to end uh, for today. Uh, first, I want to call attention to what might be an overlooked variable. They were to be men. Choose for yourselves seven men. Now, an important qualifier here. I know you, if you've been here for any, more, any amount of time, you know, and I've taught so many times, that there is no doubt when you go through the scriptures that women have such important roles in redemptive history. Women have such important roles in the life of the church. Women have so, such important roles in the life of a home and so on. I can go, I, I've given you examples in the past, and I'll give you some now. There's no doubt the scripture teaches that. Mary, the mother of Jesus was given the honor and the responsibility and of bearing and raising the child Jesus. You look in the scriptures, she's held out as a model of faith. She's held out as a model of submission to the Lord. And when you see what's often referred to as Mary's Magnificat, her exclamation of praise, this young woman knew the scriptures. She's a great example for Christians. Jesus revealed his messianic identity to a Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 25. You might remember that Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna were among the women, among those who provided for Jesus and his apostles during their earthly ministry. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. You might remember that when Jesus was on the cross, who was there? The Apostle John was there. Who else was there? The women were the ones who were there. When other followers of Christ fled, it's the women that were there. Who did Jesus first appear to after he resurrected from the dead? Mary Magdalene. Who else did he first appear to after that? The women. Who were with the apostles and the other disciples in the upper room as they were waiting for the day of Pentecost praying? Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says the women were there. I mean, you go through the scriptures, there's so many women who are identified as being these fruitful and faithful followers of Christ. One of the best places to see it I love to go to, I'll take you there quickly, Romans 16. 
Paul is sending some closing greetings to the church of Rome, and you just look at the way he holds out these examples of God-glorifying service among women. He talks about this woman, Phoebe, who was entrusted to carry the spirit-inspired epistle of, of Paul to the Romans to the church of Rome. He entrusted that to a woman named Phoebe, who was a servant of the church of Sancria, and then he identifies her in, in Romans 16, verse 2, as one who has helped many and myself also. He goes on in verses 3 and 4. He talks about a husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, who both risked their lives for his sake, risked their necks, and they had a church that met in their house. He goes on and he ends up saying in verse 6, he says, Greet Mary, who labored much for us, Romans 16, 6. A little after that, he said, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored much in the Lord, verse 12. Verse 13, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So there was this woman. He wasn't, this woman wasn't Paul's biological mother. She was Rufus's biological mother, but she so helped Paul, she was like a mother to him. And she's identified in Scripture as being such a one. Now, beyond that, women serve key roles in local churches. I mean, so many examples of that. Women are not called in local churches to teach um, the Word of God, to teach Bible studies. But women are called in local churches, for example, to teach other women the things that are prescribed in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. A woman's role in the home, a woman's role in the church is diminished and downplayed by the culture. But when you look through the scriptures, it's precious and it is critical. There is no doubt. Women have the responsibility of helping raise up a godly seed. Godly mothers, godly grandmothers. You think of like Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and think about how they poured into him so that he would know the scriptures from infancy. What his dad didn't do, his mother and his grandmother did do. And he knew the scriptures from his youth. The impact of godly wives, godly moms, godly women in a church is difficult to overstate. And I say all that to say, but when we come to recognize positions of leadership within a local church or leadership in a home, it's to be qualified men who serve in those positions. We see, for example, the priests of the Old Testament they were men. The kings of the Old Testament, they were men. The apostles of the New Testament were men. The elders that were to be appointed by the church were to be qualified men. And Jesus could have, you know, changed that trend and he could have chosen, you know, six women and six men to put in the apostleship. He didn't do that. Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles. When they were looking for a replacement for Judas, they could have chosen a woman. They didn't do that. They chose a man. Right here, the, the trend could have changed. The apostles could have chosen, you know, th three men, four women, or four men and three women. They didn't do that. They chose seven men. When Paul was giving instruction for the church and saying, you need qualified men who lead their homes well, and so on, he didn't root that requirement in culture. He rooted it in creation, and he rooted it in the fall. It's not some passing thing of culture. He said that a woman is not to have authority or teach in that local church context, and then he goes to say, for Adam was created first. 
And God didn't have to do it that way. God could have created Adam and Eve in the same way at the same time. He could have took them both from the dirt and said, here they both are. God didn't do it that way. God was teaching something. He took man, made him from the dirt, and then he took a rib from the man. And Paul's appealing to that kind of thinking in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And then he also appeals to the fall when he says the woman was deceived, but the man was not. And it was so wicked that Adam was not deceived and brought sin into the human race and transgressing against God. But he's nonetheless appealing, Paul is, to creation and the fall. Leadership positions within the local church are to be fulfilled by those who are godly and qualified men. And so I come to my closing excursus. I didn't plan for this to be the closing part of the sermon, but in light of time it will be. And I think it's very important. I told you during the announcements, and I'll say it now, if there's a problem that our society is facing, if there's a problem that the church has faced, if there's a problem that many wives have faced, if there's a problem that many homes and children have faced, it's the absence of godly men leading. Too many churches. And again, I'll qualify this. What did I say during the announcements? I'll say it again here. When you look at this church, when you look at the, the godly men and the godly women that serve in this church, it's amazing. You get fired up about the way in which God is using people here and the godliness you're seeing. But nonetheless, you look at the landscape of the church as a whole and so on, too many churches have women who, apart from being women, are more qualified to be elders than many men. It's true. It shouldn't be that way. But it's true. Too many wives have not had their husbands lead them lovingly, spiritually, leading them in serving at the church leading them in family devotions, leading them in modeling Christ-like service to the family. Too many mothers have had to be disciplinarians because the dad is too passive or indifferent to actually discipline the children when they're doing something wrong. So mothers have had to step up into roles that they shouldn't have to step up into. Do mothers provide discipline? No doubt. But should husbands and dads spearhead that in a loving way? Of course, they ought to. Too many sons have not had their dads exhibit before their eyes the importance of the local church or how to love and serve a wife and how to be both tender and strong, disciplining while also being a great listener. Too many daughters have not had their dads protect them from the world and immorality. They bought the world's lie. We talked about this on the Friday night not too long ago. I talked about it some years back in What is Christian Dating? And so many people have bought the lie. I'll just quick parenthetical thought of what I said in that message a few weeks ago and what I said back in 2014. Think about this. Where did you learn what you learned about dating from? If you're like me, you say, Boy Meets World and Saved by the Bell. That's where I learned it from. And the other kids that I was around in school, right? Learned it from some other shows that aren't good. I don't, not that those were good, but I learned it from some other shows. That's where we've learned that stuff from. And there's been a lot of dads who have been inculcated with that kind of thinking too. And they think, oh, it's just normal. Once she turns like 11 or 12 or 13, she can go out here, she can go there, she can have this boyfriend, that boyfriend, she can do all these things, not thinking in a Christian way that really the courtship, the dating, is supposed to lead right into marriage. And that you're supposed to provide these guardrails. It's your responsibility to protect them so they don't get cut up with all these wounds that somebody else has to buy up later on. But there have been these kind of deficiencies because the idea of leadership and men embracing that role of protection and leading and guiding has been sadly forfeited all too often. And I think one of the things that we want to be very intentional about in this church is we want to be fired up, fired up 
about the blessed downstream effects of godly, self-sacrificial, committed, protective, loving, disciplining leadership in the home, in the marriage, and in the church. Who knows what God will do in the days ahead as those men who love the Lord Jesus Christ say, I want to grow in my capacity to be somebody who is qualified to serve in these roles. God may never call you into the diaconate. God may never call you into the eldership. But like I said, when we taught through 1 Timothy, those requirements are by and large a call for all. Every man should look at 1 Timothy 3. Every man should look at Titus 1. Every man should say, I want to meet these qualifications. And if the Lord leads me into the diaconate, if he leads me into the eldership, that is his prerogative. But I want to grow in Christ-likeness by meeting these qualifications. And why do you do it? You do it out of love for Christ. You do it out of love for his church. You do it because he gave himself for you on the cross and you want to honor him. You love him. So I told you I had a lot to say. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. I'm just imagining what God would do uh, through this, through this message. We will stop there. Um, we'll stop there for today. I, I, I don't want to end, though, without giving the, the motivation that I just alluded to for all of this. The, mo the motivation for all of this is the gospel. It's the motivation for everything that we do. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean the motivation is the gospel? You say, I want to, if I'm a husband, I want to love my wife like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. You see what I mean? So even for husbands, Ephesians 5.25, what's driving you? What's motivating you? Jesus Christ is motivating you. Because you say, look at him. Look how awesome he is. Look how perfect he is. And he gave his life for a wretched sinner like me so that I could be forever forgiven. The gospel drives you. The gospel motivates you. If you're going to be a godly man, a godly woman, a godly child, whatever you're going to do, you want the gospel to drive you. And if you say, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God did in sending his eternally begotten son to take on flesh. Because we all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have broken God's commandments. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve punishment in what the scripture calls the lake of fire. Because God is more holy than we can imagine and we're more sinful than we can imagine. But God in his grace and in his love demonstrated his love by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we can never live, to absorb in its totality the wrath of God that we can never absorb, to die on the cross, to be buried according to the Scriptures, and to be raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, so that all who believe in Him, not trusting in their self or their works, but trusting in Christ alone, might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. All of your sins, deficits, in any of the things that I just mentioned, any sin that you've committed, absolved, gone, in the moment that you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent, you turn away from your sin, and you look to Jesus, and you have forgiveness, and it becomes the motivation for everything that you do. Church, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the importance of the word and the power that is in the word to change us, Lord. Father, as we look at ourselves, we see so many areas of uh, deficiency or inadequacy. Father, as we go through our lives, we are so reminded over and over again of our sinfulness, which makes us first so thankful for the blood of the new and everlasting covenant and what you did in sending your son. Thank you for Jesus.
Thank you for casting our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for casting them into the sea of forgetfulness. Thank you, God, who knows all things, saying in the new covenant, I will remember your iniquities no more. Thank you. And so, Father, I pray in light of that, if there are people in this place who have not come to that, that today would be the day. And I pray, Lord, that you would use our teaching time in Acts chapter 6 to raise up in this church, Lord, more and more men who would be desirous to be qualified to serve in roles within the church, that you would help us all, Lord, any one of us who has any kind of responsibility towards people in our lives, that we would grow in fulfilling those responsibilities well. I thank you, Lord, for the godly women and the godly men in this church. I thank you for the believing children in this church. And I pray together, Lord, that by your word you would help us all grow and look more like Christ and may the motivation for it all not be some sort of um, self-project, but it would be driven by love for our Savior. May it be, Lord. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.